The opinions expressed on this WebmasterRadio.fm program are those of the host, guests, and callers, and do not reflect those of the staff, management, or advertisers of WebmasterRadio.fm. Any rebroadcast or retransmission of this program without the express written consent of WebmasterRadio.fm is prohibited. From the pinnacle of the media landscape, this is Market Edge. Join your host, Larry Weber, as he discovers the answers from analysts, entrepreneurs, and technologists who are preparing the blueprints for the future of marketing. Hear from those who are taking us to a new age of social media, e-communities, and the blogosphere. Now, please welcome your host of Market Edge, Larry Weber. Hi, and welcome to Market Edge. I'm your host, Larry Weber, chairman of W2 Group, a global marketing services ecosystem organized to help CMOs in their new role as builders of communities and content aggregators. Two W2 Group companies, Digital Influence Group and RacePoint Group, are leaders in social media marketing in both paid and unpaid media. Today, we'll be talking about vendor relationship management, among other things, with Doc Searles, co-author of the international bestseller, The Clue Train Manifesto, and a fellow at the Berkman Center for Internet and Society at Harvard University, where he heads up Project VRM. In addition to his work at Harvard, Doc also holds a fellowship with the Center for Information Technology and Society at the University of California, Santa Barbara, where his work focuses on the study of the Internet as a new form of infrastructure. A veteran speaker, writer, and blogger, Doc currently serves as the senior editor for Linux Journal and authors the widely read blog, Doc Searle's Weblog. Over the years, his bylines have appeared in numerous publications, including Wired, PC Magazine, and The Globe and Mail. Through his consultancy, the Searles Group, Doc has provided consulting to market-leading companies like Hitachi, Sun, Apple, Nortel, British Telecom, Motorola, in addition to many startups. And plus, he's a good guy. It's great to have you on Market Edge, Doc. Oh, thanks a lot. I appreciate it. Hey, it's been over a decade since the Clue Train Manifesto shook us all up a bit and delivered the thesis on the misconceptions corporate leaders applied to their customers. How have you seen customer relationship management evolve in these, I guess it's 10 years now, Doc? Well, it's, it's funny. In the last uh, four years or so, um, there's just a noise on the line. Are we still cool? Yeah, we're going. Let's okay, start again. Do I have to say the question again, guys? Or? Um, yeah. So, yeah. For the, for the last uh, uh, four years, I've been working at the uh, at the Berkman Center on Project VRM. VRM didn't actually have a name until uh, until about three and a half years ago. Uh, but there was something that was said in in uh, it was said by Chris Locke in the preamble to the Clue Train Manifesto. Uh, it was a, it was a line that really galvanized us, and I think uh, got us off the dime to write Clue Train. It was um, it, it said. Uh, we are not seats or eyeballs or end users or consumers. We are human beings, and our reach exceeds your grasp. Deal with it. And that was a, a very energizing statement. And in, in the words of uh, uh, Jakob Nielsen, who's kind of the king of usability, um, it was a way that we kind of defected from marketing and went over and sided with markets against marketing as it was at that time. And, um, and, and while it was a, a galvanizing statement, I didn't think it was quite true. I, don't think, I didn't think that... Uh, customers' reach actually did exceed uh, sellers' grasps, um, and and wouldn't until there were tools that were exclusively in the hands of customers. 
Um, right now, all the tools that we have are mostly those that are provided by the sellers, and those are all different. In fact, they work very hard to sort of trap us in. Um, you know, all loyalty programs are like this. You know, the you know Stop and Shop and Shaw's and uh, uh, Borders and and you know uh, Costco and all of them give you their loyalty cards cards, and those work only with those stores. It's very exclusive. It's kind of like it's kind of like the internet was before the internet came along, and we had to deal with with AOL and CompuServe and Prodigy and all those, they all had ways of making you talk. And so we felt there was a need for uh, tools that were independent of sellers and that would belong to the buyers themselves. We didn't get around to encouraging the development of those uh, until uh, we started Project VRM at the Berkman Center. And it was really named that fall um, during a podcast by uh, one of Steve Gilmore's podcasts, by Mike, Mike Vizard, one of the participants in a podcast, I, I said basically what we're doing is the reciprocal of CRM, which is customer relationship management. He said, well, therefore, it must be VRM, or vendor relationship management. And the name immediately stuck. So, and since then, there have been a, there's been a lot of development, all independent, all by different groups, um, some in the U.K., some in the Netherlands, uh, some in California, some in Boston, some in Salt Lake City, uh, and other places that are, and it's just beginning, I think, now to come together. It's uh, we're starting to see a cohesive picture start to emerge. But I wouldn't say that the tools are ready yet. But I think we can we can see them on the horizon at least. How how long do you think we have to wait? And and at what point do you think that marketing as we know it just disappears and this sort of vendor relationship management really takes over? I don't think it's going to be uh, um, one disappearing and the other one taking over. I think what's going to happen is 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 it is basically the gradual improvement of the internet. I think VRM is one of the things that we see implicit in the internet, but not yet here. Um, like a few years ago, I I said that you know the web was a static place and it was going to become live as well as static, and we're seeing that now with uh, with Twitter and. And, uh, and, and, you know, SMS is much more integrated, you know, as a messaging of various kinds with, with what we're doing, and, and it's not a static place anymore. Um, and that took a few years, and we could see it coming. I think in a, in a similar way, what's going to happen is that more and more tools are going to be in the hands of customers, so the customers are going to be able to drive sellers at least as well as sellers imagine they're driving buyers. The difference is going to be that the guesswork is going to be gradually reduced, if not eliminated. So an awful lot of what goes into advertising right now is trying to form tastes and, 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 and drive customers like cattle. Well, to some extent, we actually want that. You know, we want the inventions that mother necessity. We want Apple to come up with, with an iPad and with iPods and i-everything else. We, we depend on that, actually, and that's a good thing. But we're going to have less of, of the, you know, the the, the kind of um, uh, say, say you know coupon based stuff and and uh, you know to, to pushing people to you know one sale after another basically trying to create the appetites that are out there because there's an awful lot of demand that's just unfulfilled and what'll, what's gradually going to happen is that more of that that demand is going to express itself and sellers' interest in existing demand is probably going to outstrip their interest in demand they'd rather create. It's going to be an easier process to follow the actual demand of customers than to try and force that demand into existence. Hey, Doc, I noticed you you talked about um, the intention economy 
First, can you tell our listeners what that is and why do you believe companies should learn how to harness the, quote, intention, unquote, of purchasing dollars over the attention of them? Okay, well, so I think the right now we have uh, what a number of people, not just me, call an att- attention, that's A-T-T, attention, uh, form of attention, um, <clears throat> Based on about a trillion dollars a year or something like that being spent on advertising, for example, there's an awful lot of energy that goes into trying to capture or attract the attention of customers. And I think a lot of that money is wasted. As a matter of fact, I I think probably the vast majority of it is wasted. So even though Google has made enormous improvements in the way advertising works, for example, by making it accountable, I don't think that, um, uh, you know, that given a choice between um, forcing people to have attention and actually serving their intentions that already exist um, uh, is going to be much of a choice. So uh, the, the intention economy is going to arise from the ability of people to actually express their intentions in the marketplace. You know, I'm going to be looking for a car in six months. You know, I'm, I'm, you know here's exactly what I want. I want a stroller for twins in Baltimore in the next two hours. How am I going to get that? There's an awful lot of that right now. That's money left on the table, and we call that M-lot, money left on the table. And that money is going to start moving off the table um, once we start getting the tools for expressing it. Then that's where the intention economy starts to come along. Ah, I get it. And and when that starts coming along, it's really the, the consumer is now very, very, very much in control, correct? Yeah, and in fact, we, we, we generally avoid using the term consumer because it, it – it suggests that people only consume, that they don't right. also produce, that, that they are not. They're sort of a the, – the term consumer is – it's probably unavoidable, but um, it, it really came along in the 30s. That's when Consumer Reports was created, for example, and yep. Consumers Union. Um, on, and it's based on the assumption that, that we as customers um, it's basically have a choice among uh, a few large companies to provide us what we need. And we have to kind of uh, get together and, and fight the man, that kind of thing. Um, what we have with the Internet is the ability of all of us to produce information as well as consume it and to have far more control over our interactions with sellers than we ever had before. Right now we're still in an era when our, you know, we still think of a free market is your choice of captor, um, especially on the sell side, we think that. You know, one company tries to capture customers more than the other captures customers. Well, at a certain point, customers aren't going to want to be captured anymore. And I think at the point that they're not captured, they're no longer uh, consumers alone. Hey, you know, you talk about, like, the... The, the individual that, you know, wants the, the, you know, stroller for twins or, you know, is going to go looking for a car, you know, in, in the in the world, fast-moving, evolving world of social media, when is the power of sharing uh, going to affect more and more purchase decisions so that, you know, I before I buy something, I want to know if 30 of my you know, people in my network uh, have bought the same thing or how much they spent, et cetera, and how does that fit into this whole concept? I, I think social media, as we understand it now, is both, I think we have a tendency to both overstate it in one direction and understate it in another. I think we overstate it in, in, in the sense that we're only going to look to our friends for help for things. Um, and we don't even have a very clear idea of who friends are. I mean, I've got 700 friends on 
Facebook, and if you <laughs> ask me what you know when any of their birthdays are, I, I know a few relatives probably. You know, there's there, you know, we've distorted what we mean by friendship there, and also the you know the number of people that we rely on for for advice about things that it is really very much wider than our social network alone. We're going to find out a lot more just by looking something up on Google uh, or on Bing than we're going to find out just looking at our, our social networks. Another problem with social networks as we know them now is that they're almost all private. Uh, uh, you know, friends are first, and then MySpace, and now Facebook are, are private habitats, and we're finding out the problems with that. You know, we, they are not the web. They are AOL you know, 2.0 and 3.0 and 4.0. You know, big companies keep trying to do the same thing over and over again. And once again, it's, it's customer traps. And as good as Facebook is at a lot of things, it's still a private habitat. It is not the open web. It's the great indoors, not the great outdoors. Twitter, to a lesser degree, has the same problem. Um, it's, it's microblogging, but it's one company's microblogging. It's not microblogging in general. It's still kind of a private email service. It's not substitutable. Um, for something to be truly open, it should be substitutable, and none of these things are. So I don't think we have social media as well as we're going to have it someday when it isn't owned by any one company. So this is the other direction I was talking about, that at some point we're going to have much more nuanced and and uh, genuine and less controlled relationships with our actual social networks, excuse me, and not our, and not our sort of confined social networks as they're defined by one company or by one other company. I think it's going to be much more um, selective and wide open than that in, in the sense that we're going to have much more control over it. You know, it'd be much easier if you just went into your existing contact database of people you know or would like to know and, and go through that and construct your own social network there and, say, and then have your own rules for how that works because that's how it works in the real world. And in some point, at some point, the the online world is going to look more like the real world and not vice versa. So, and I think at that point we're going to have uh, much more rich and nuanced relationships than we have now. I couldn't concur with you more. We're going to take a short commercial break right now. Please stand by. We'll be right back with Market Edge and Doc Searles and more of the conversation. This is Larry Weber. Market Edge will continue in just a moment. Did you know? 99designs is a leading marketplace for graphic design on the Internet. Did you know? 99designs connects you to a community of over 35,000 designers who will compete to do the best work for you. Did you know? 99designs allows you to post projects for logo design, web page design, t-shirt design, and more. Did you know? 99designs projects need an average of over 70 different design options for a price that you set. 99designs. When designers compete, you win. Anyway, I ask. That's right, ma'am. Anyway, you ask. Let me get this straight. If I wanted your CEO to deliver my check while juggling flaming machetes on the back of an Asian elephant, all I have to do is ask? Correct. With in-demand affiliates, you can tell us exactly how you want your payouts, and we will deliver. God, uh, could you hold on for a second? Someone's at the door. (laughs) Wow, you weren't kidding. We are in demand. You can be too. Sign up today at the letter ndemandaffiliates.com. Staying ahead of the curve to deliver the best online marketing solutions you need. That's what the JAR Group is all about. The JAR Group offers a full-service suite of marketing and managing solutions custom-tailored for affiliate search and social media. The JAR Group uses their resources and research to help meet and exceed the revenue expectations of each and every client. 
Find out how the Jar Group can work for you at thejargroup.com. That's thejargroup.com. The Jar Group, online marketing with measurable results. Mobile Presence, Wednesdays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific, or on demand anytime inside the Internet Marketing Channel, only on webmasterradio.fm. From the pinnacle of the marketing landscape, we now return to Market Edge. Once again, here's your host, Larry Weber. Welcome back to Market Edge. This is your host, Larry Weber, and I'm here today with Doc Searles, a fellow at Harvard's Berkman Center and co-author of the Clue Train Manifesto. We're talking about his latest research projects, vendor relationship management, and much more. Before the break, Doc, we were starting to talk about social media's impact, and uh, I was very intrigued with your direction on true openness. Now, you've been somebody that's been around the open movement, if you'll allow me to say that, for a very long time, especially from a software perspective. How long are we going to have to wait for the truly open social uh, platforms to uh, that aren't proprietary, like you say, Facebook, which I agree with you is sort of AOL 3.0 or, or whatever, how long are we going to have to wait? And how is that going to impact the way businesses work when it's truly open? Well, I think that there's always going to be a bit of a tug between what's open and what's closed. And I think that there's some things that only closed can do. So, so for example, um, you know, Apple with the iPad. Apple with the iPad and before that the iPhone defined in a kind of vertical dimension what could be done on on, on handheld devices. And then in a horizontal direction, we'll have the open guys moving it out in that direction. And that's a much wider uh, space. I think we're going to see, a, you know, that's, that's part of the way the world's going to work. I don't know when we're going to get open social networking. I think, I think to some degree we've, all, we've, all, we've had it all along. I think we've had it with instant messaging. I think we have it with SMS. I think we, we have it with email. Um, those are open things. We take them for granted now. Um, but they're made possible, but mostly by open protocols. So there's a, there are protocols called SMTP and IMAP and, and POP3, and those are what make email possible. What that means is you can take your email from your own server to Google's and then take it from there to Hotmail if you want, but it's still yours. You can still move it around. Those, those are substitutable services. So I think something similar to that is going to emerge probably after somebody invents the protocols for it. Um, or the existing protocols that already are around um, are discovered by somebody who makes something that, you know, that works. But a uh, hundred years ago, Thorsten Veblen said, invention is the mother of necessity. So we have to wait for the invention to mother the necessity uh, before we, you know, before we can say it's actually here. But I'm quite confident it will come along. And how is that going to affect the way, you know, companies actually you know, uh, market and sell their products, do you think? Well, the big thing is going to be that the, um, and this is what uh, David Weinberg in particular in, in the Clue Train Manifesto and in, in, uh, in his chapter, um, I forget the title of it, but it had a line in it about Fort Business, what he called Fort Business, that we, we confuse the making of business, uh, creating a business to the building of a fort. You know, you get your security badge when you go in and sign <laughs> documents and say you're not going to, you know, no, no, Secrets will escape here, and the comp- companies are built to resemble forts, these kind of city-states, you know, in the in the middle of, of cities, and and 
and that was that's a relic of the industrial age. Um, you know, I think I think you know companies um, exist because they are the best way to make certain things happen. And uh, if you're gonna if you're gonna make chips or if you're gonna build cars or something like that, it kind of helps to have a big company to do that. But they're not going to be as isolated as they used to be, and they're going to exist far more at the sufferance of their employees and of their customers than ever before. And they're going to have to adapt to a world in which they need to be able to respond to anybody and everybody and not just to templates that they hold up saying, this is our typical customer. You know, I mean, at this point, I got another survey from somebody this morning. You know, first thing they ask is how old I am. And the next thing they ask is what my income is. And uh, that was, uh, was for Wired magazine or some magazine. I forget what. But, you know, how is that relevant <laughs> to anything? You know, I mean, I may want the same thing a 24-year-old wants. Um, I may want, you know, but my income may have nothing to do with the next thing that I buy. It probably won't have anything to do with it. They're making generalizations. And I think that the, what we're going to see is the, the end of the era of companies making products only for generalizations. They still need to make some generalizations, but the old generalizations that were based on the assumption that you really can't know 